Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today, we're going to talk about a topic, the topic of living to 100 years old. What does it mean to live that old? Can you live a healthy life? And really, what is the secret to longevity? Well, joining me now is our guest, Jason Prawl. He is the founder of um, the Human Longevity Project. He has traveled around the world making a mini documentary series uh, visiting different people different who have lived past the age of 100 and figuring out what the secret, what they have in common and what the secret of their success is. Jason, thanks so much for joining us and welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just start first with, um, I mean, we, we talk a lot about the brain and, and we'll get to the brain, but when you um, embarked on this project, um, obviously you started to see a lot of similarities in really um, people who are living long lives. Is it possible to live um, past the age or to 100 years old and be happy and healthy? I think that it's it's definitely possible to be happy. Um, healthy is is however we want to qualitatively define that, right? I mean. At the end of the day, I think we have to come to grips with the fact that we are mortal, that we have uh, a death, that life is a journey, and part of growing older is losing function. Um, this is what we you know, inevitably saw with the people that we spoke with around the world. Even people that were beyond 100 and quote unquote, what we would say is healthy, still had a decline, right? Um, one of my favorite people that we talked to in Italy was um, a guy named Julio, who was 104 years old, and he was still able to ride, ride a bike at 104. To me, that's remarkable. And to see him do it, I was just stunned. But, you know, he moved slow, and his hearing was starting to go, and his teeth were starting to go. So, you know, there's a part of this process that I think is is humbling, but also we have to honor, which is that the beauty of it is, is to see the declination, even in somebody that's healthy, hopefully makes us realize that who we are today is pretty good. You know, the fact that I can live without, you know, tremendous pain, I can still see for the most part, whatever it is, everybody has their, their things. I mean, we're all in different places, but to at least honor and respect and, and have gratitude for a rat, I think that's what, what we were shown through that process. And, and certainly the happiness, um, that's a that's a decision that, that that has to do with how you've shown up in the world, how you place meaning and story around your life. And that I think is where happiness comes from. So you can be 24 years old and in theory healthy, but not happy. And, and the opposite is true and be completely on the, on the down end, that down part of your life, almost kicking the bucket and and just happier than ever. So um, I think we have to kind of se separate the two to some degree. So what what were the um, similarities? I mean, you traveled to Japan, to Italy, um, Costa Rica. You traveled around the world um, and interviewed quite a number of people. What was the common thread that they all shared? I mean, there was a number of things that they, that they all shared. Um, at the end of the day, I think that what, what really stuck out to me in a sort of blanket statement is to say that they all lived a simple life. So they, they moved with the rhythms of nature. They were in close connection with their community, with each other, with their family. They, they did not get overwhelmed with, with, the, with life and what was going on around them. Um, meaning was, was a huge part of their life. 
So meaning in everyday things, you know, not big things. They didn't have to have this, you know, Elon Musk or, or Steve Jobs type of, of reality or Oprah Winfrey type of reality to be happy and to have meaning. They, were, they had meaning all around them. Meaning was a choice. So, um, you know, their food was simple. They, everything, their, their movement and exercise patterns were simple. Everything around their whole life was simple. And the more modernized we get, it seems the more complexity we add to our life. So I think our challenge now in the Western world is to decomplexify, to reduce the clutter in our minds, in our, in our, in our spaces, in our foods, you know, everything that we're doing, we have to kind of strip away to some degree. So, you know, looking at that general sort of archetypal theme of simplicity, that seemed to, to be the thing that bred happiness, that bred healthy behavior, that bred a sense of, of real meaning and belonging in the world. So what do you attribute that to? Um, and, and it's a really interesting point that you make, like simplicity. Is, is it because simplicity equals more happiness, less worries, less stress? Um, where's the correlation between people who are living more simplistic lives and us who live in a big city and it's always hustle bustle, a lot of technology around us? Um, how do you draw parallels there? That's a good question. I think they, they don't always correlate, right? So we can have somebody that lives a simple life that is completely unhappy, that lacks meaning, that can't figure things out. And we can have somebody that has a really complex life and that is really dialed in, uh, a life of meaning, a life of connection. So they don't always correlate, but, but the simplicity seemed to be uh, a better starting point because it, you know, these people, you know, 50 years ago didn't have electricity. So it's not like simplicity was a choice. That's just the way things work. You know, they could not, they didn't have a refrigerator and a freezer and, the, and a TV and all these things. So, you know, a, a lot of their life was based around the necessities. So I think that's really the key is, is that because it was based around the necessities and they needed connection, they needed each other. So a lot of, of their, their, their life and the things that provided meaning was required to some degree, whereas now it's almost optional um, in terms of our survival. Right. It's not optional in terms of, in my opinion, in terms of our happiness and our meaning uh, and our and our purpose in life. But I think this is where we have, an, we have to make an intentional decision. So the, the simple life there, the, the historical context in which they lived was just uh, gave them a, a, a more likely opportunity to live a life that was centered around the absolute necessities um, to to live. I mean, some of these people grew up in times where the government you know, was giving them food and they, that's, they couldn't, there was no food. There was armistice. There were, they were living on scraps. I mean, one guy told me when he was 14 years old, he was like 40 pounds. Um, he was, you know, frail and there was nothing left because there was a war going on and there was an Island. So there was an opportunity. So, you know, they imagine yourself going on a fast, taking a break from food for seven days, all of a sudden broccoli, you know, is just like, it makes your mouth water. You know, when you strip things away, all of a sudden, the simple things in life seem to have so much meaning. You know, a glass of water or just a, a bite of food has just that much more magic to it. So I think as we take away the, the excesses, the simple things, the things that we really, really require, that we really value start to show up, and, and we recognize those things. The other stuff, all this crap that we're filling our lives with, you know, isn't so meaningful because we know what, what we really need and really makes us happy. 
Let's talk a little bit though about diet in particular. So when you talk about simplicity, I'm assuming that a lot of the people you interviewed, it's it's farm to table, no choice, right? I mean, they're farming probably their own food. Um, they're not eating processed foods. Um, how much did you find um, diet related to longevity? I mean, I think that's a huge part of it, right? I mean, it's it, 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 I know it's one that we all want to go to, right? Because it's such a meaningful part of our life, right? Food. It's like, you know, I can't get any more basic than that. So well, there's, there's something big there. But um, undoubtedly, it's playing a huge role. How much is very difficult to say. Um, the human body is quite amazing uh, to be able to deal with the Coca-Colas and the Doritos and all the crap that we give it. And still somehow we can be happy and somewhat healthy. It's actually remarkable to me. Um, so, you know, there is... There's that aspect, but but yes, you know the, the food that they were eating was was backyard garden to table, you know, um, and oftentimes backyard garden to mouth. Um, so you know they 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 were so simple in this aspect. So um, I think it played a huge role in in not only the, the physical health of the body, um, but also in the community. You know, you you cooked with the family. You had there's everything was sort of centered around food. Was was in relation to something else, whether it was an event, a party, a, a gathering, um, you know, what have you. So um, exchanging it with others, there, there was a communal aspect. Whereas now, it's the social aspect of food is really starting to fall apart with food delivery options and you know all these things that we're doing now. So um, the food in it is inevitably a culturally important topic, not only physical health but also mental, social. Um, you know, a, a psycho-spiritual, emotional, all that stuff is is part of it too. So it's where we can connect with one another. So I think, you know, if we can use the food as that as that vehicle for connection and community, as well as something to nourish our bodies, um, that really does seem to be be a huge, huge factor. And I think more than we're willing to, to even quantify because of the peripheral effects beyond just the physical aspect of eating food. Okay, and we're getting um, a viewer asking, writing in a question saying, can you offer examples of some of the most memorable conversations you had with a few centenarians um, you spoke to and what part of the world they lived in and what did you learn from these conversations? Yeah, one that stands out immediately was um, chatting with a, a gentleman in Ikaria, Greece, which is a small island uh, in Greece. It's sort of, you, you probably wouldn't recognize it where it is unless you are into this sort of longevity stuff. Um, but he was telling me a story about in the village that he lived in, he was going to work, he's walking to work and on his way to work, he saw a friend and they sat down and they started chatting. And then another friend came up, another person they knew, and he started chatting. And before they knew it, they were sitting there all day drinking wine, like eight of them, you know, drinking bottles and bottles of wine and none of them went to work. And this wasn't a thing where you called your boss and you skipped out. It was just like, no, this is what's important. They walked to work and I see a friend that I haven't seen in a while and we're going to chat. And so, it, 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 you know, that was their life. It was this type of thing. Um, it, one of the coolest things. The social aspect is so important. It, it was life. You know, it, this wasn't a matter of, it's like they knew, they, they had things in perspective. Yes, there was jobs to be done. They needed to, to do things around the village. They had works. They had, they, they had things to do. But the most important thing was to live life, you know, in the, in the relationships. And so, and another thing that stands out in Ikaria, Greece, wasn't a story necessarily. It was actually an opportunity. We got to go to this thing called a panayiri, which is a all-night gathering, usually to celebrate celebrate like the, the saint or something of the village. But it was really an opportunity for the, the village to come together. And you can imagine just like this, almost like a barbecue is what I could sort of relate it to. But everybody bought food. And they were making food all day long. There was hundreds of people there. There was a music playing. 
And the whole village got together and just, it went from 5 p.m. until like 7 a.m., literally all night long. People from five years old to 95 years old, they were doing this. And so to go and experience something like that, and they were drinking wine and ouzo and eating food and dancing and music was literally nonstop. And it was just people gathering together. Now I could look at that and say, okay, so they're not getting their sleep. This is really damaging. They're drinking alcohol, but it wasn't about that, right? It was about coming together, having fun, having a laugh, moving, dancing, and and all the great things. So that was a really cool experience um, to, to go through that. Um, let's see, another one that stands out is in Italy, in, in the mountain region of Sardinia, Italy. Um, they, they have a lot of shepherds there. And so they're, they're sheep herding and they're doing all this stuff. And one guy told me about how he would walk 40, 50 kilometers a day um, to get the sheep from one area to another. And oftentimes he'd have to walk back. So these people were moving and walking it. And along the way, he'd drink out of the, out of the, the streams, the, the mountain streams. And he, he credits a lot of his health. He was 98 years old. Um, he credits a lot of his health to the amazing water that they have in the mountainous areas of Sardinia. Um, and I can get into a rant on the science behind the, the, the water quality, but these are some of the cool stories, you know, and, and a lot of them aren't sexy, you know, um, you know, this idea of one, one guy in, in, in Sardinia, Italy, a different guy told me about how he would ride his bike 30 kilometers to work, work all day in the fields or whatever he was doing, manual style labor, and then ride his bike 30 kilometers back. And that's a lot of work. That's a lot of effort. And so this is not a sexy thing. You know, we have so much luxury in our world. So, um, you know, there was a lot of these type of stories, you know, uh, but they were all centered around what I would term it. I would, I would frame as real life experience. You know, it was not, it, not to say that our life is bad here with computers, but it wasn't this sort of artificial interaction. You know, we, there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of this. Like this is a great example of the benefits of the internet and the things that we can do here. But there was something meaningful about their connections. And to me, that's what stood out. I think maybe personally, I long for that, uh, more of that type of communal interaction and real world interaction. And I think I, I, I long for our society to sort of experience that because when you hear it and you 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 see it and to some degree take part in it, it's sort of primal in you. It's just like it, we're, we're missing this. So, you know, there's a lot of those type of stories, um, tons of stuff, honestly, that 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 all go back to a more, simple way of living. Um, one, one guy was telling me in Costa Rica that his, he remembers his mom, his, his aunt, I believe, or his, somebody in his, on, on, I think it was his aunt. When he was a kid, his aunt would run, when she was pregnant, would sneak off to go try to have the baby by herself down by the river. And I'm like, by herself? And he's, and he's like, yeah, she would just go try to sneak off and we'd have to try to go get her. But this is, it showed me too many, two things. One is women are instinctual about their birth and their body and going to a river, you know, we can get into the energy aspects of that, but there was something about that for her to go to the river and she, and the confidence to be able to have the baby by herself, no doctors, no midwives, no nothing shows us how powerful, you know, the human is and the female is to be able to do something like that on her own. And then we've sort of taken that power away from our women to think they need this staff of doctors in order or if, to be safe showed me that there was a different reality. And so there's a lot of these cool stories from the past. So, so do you think that though, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're really describing a kind of more tribal uh, lifestyle, right? Back to nature, back to the basics. Um, but 
did you find that in these areas, I mean, cause you know, if you, you have to farm your food every day, that's hard work. That's hard work on your body that, you know, that's aging, um, being under the beaten sun in a lot of places. Did you find that people, did you get a sense that people were actually healthier? I mean, were, were there, was there less dementia? Um, did you get any like statistics around or you know, all of these commonalities that you, you may have witnessed? Yeah, I mean, we didn't gather statistics because statistics are, I mean, as my, one of my favorite quotes is there's lies and there's statistics. Um, <laughs> there's lies, damn lies, and there's statistics. Um, as somebody who studied math and statistics actually in my previous sort of life, um, they can be very easily manipulated and they're very hard to wrap your head around the reality behind those. That said, on the surface level, we do know that there's a certain percentage of people that are making it to 100 in ways that we're not here in the West, right? So that's one statistic we can look at. It's a point to what you're getting at. But just observationally, yes, I would say that they're tremendously healthier um, overall, particularly from a chronic perspective. They didn't seem to have the chronic degenerative conditions that we are seeing here in the West. As a, I mean, I was a practitioner for a number of years before I moved into this sort of realm. And I mean, I'm working with 30-year-olds that have, you know, they're losing their hair, 35-year-olds with autoimmune diseases, um, you know, skin conditions, and, and, you know, you name it, low libido and can't sleep and all these things. So um, this is common between the ages of 25 and 50 in our, in our culture. For them, I'm seeing people in their 80s and 90s that don't have any. They're not really dealing with anything. The dementia, I mean, I'm speaking coherently to a 104-year-old man who is joking with me and laughing. And we have those here too, you know, so it's not a, it's, it's not a race to the top, but, but there just seemed to be a little bit more coherence for sure, without a doubt. And just in conversations, you know, I would ask people, I'd say, you know, digestive issues, you know, do you, you know anybody with digestive issues? And they look at me like, what do you mean? Like they can't go to the bathroom? And I mean, if you pulled 100 people, I bet 50 would have d digestive issues here of some sort, whether it's gas or bloating or constipation or diarrhea or, you know, chronic conditions. So they just didn't seem to have, like, they didn't even really know what I was asking sometimes. And I actually asked somebody about sleep and they said, you know, no, what do you mean? I, 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 no, everybody can sleep, you know. So it was almost like a weird question. They didn't really get what I was asking. Cancer is starting to come up for these people now because Western culture is starting to influence. So cell phones and internet and sedentary lifestyle and processed foods. So our Western influence is now making their way there and disease is starting to show up. In fact, in Okinawa, they call it hamburger syndrome. So, you know, it's starting to, but, but of the older populations and previously and, and historically speaking, they just didn't seem to have these things. Um, you know, I know people like to say that you know, in previous generations, they died at 40. And like, that's so over exaggerated. It's crazy. You know, yes, they got infections. You know what they did to treat infections in Costa Rica? They gave them papaya leaf tea. They were sick for a few days and they got rid of, and they got through their dengue. Here we'd go to the ER if somebody had dengue. They gave them papaya leaf tea. So they just knew how to deal with that stuff better. They, they got sick, which trained their immune systems. They were stronger. They seemed to be more robust. Um, so yeah, I think the other thing about, you know, we talk about brain health, right? One of the things about brain health that we really have to be aware of is inflammation. Right? This chronic neurodegenerative inflammation at the, at the brain level. You know, microglial activation. There's all kinds of these tau, you know, tau proteins and neurofibrillary tangles and leads to Alzheimer's and dementia. These are protective mechanisms that, that step into play. These plaques that we get in the brain, they're actually good. You want plaques there. Why? Because those plaques are, that are there to protect you the problem is the inflammation 
and the mitochondrial dysfunction, the plaques are there to try to seal things up and to contain the damage. So we look at the plaque and say the plaque's the bad thing. No, the plaque does contribute to the problem, but it's there trying to as a stopgap, right? It's like a crutch. So what we get rid of is the inflammation. And a lot of the inflammation that we are seeing here comes from a lot of this lifestyle-driven stuff. So poor sleep and, and all these things. So that 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 inflammation that, that we're getting here at the brain level and at the system level as a whole doesn't take hold when you when you get sick. When you get the flu every year, or when you catch a cold, or you catch whatever it is, even the measles and all these things we love to demonize, your immune system is kicking into gear. When your immune system kicks into gear, it actually cleans up cancer, right? So we, we don't like getting sick because it feels awful. We have temperature, we have we achy, we have headaches, we get stuffed up. That's your immune system. That's not the infection. That's the immune system making you feel that way. So while the immune system is going crazy in your body, it's cleaning up cancer, neurodegeneration, all those inflammatory things that, that we're seeing, these, these, these infections, it's, it's the immune system's helping. We don't want the immune system on forever, but we do want to get it on and we want it on hard, right? I think it was Hippocrates that said, give me a fever and I can cure any disease. <laughs> very, very accurate in that. The, the fever is majorly powerful. So, so they got sick often. They got sick. Their immune system was well-trained. They had a very good army, so to speak. They had a very good military because their, their immune system was very well-trained. So that actually helps protect against brain diseases that later in life, helps protect against cancer. So this is what we have to recognize that in our society, we are trying to protect ourselves from all these things and our immune system doesn't get to work in, a, in an acute, strong way. It's now low-level, chronically activated, which actually causes more problems and does not clean up the damage like it would if it was acutely engaged. Okay, so when you went around, I mean, you know, some of the things that you're saying are, you know, it's diet, it's socialization, you know, really being happy and, and engaged with people. Those are all things we know um, are good for our brains. Um, you know, being in touch with nature, something as simple as that, that's good for our health. Um, but when you when you went there and you talked to um, all of these people who have who are living long long lives, um, what is it that you felt you you learned that you didn't know before um, you went? I think that what really got ingrained in me was how important the environment was to your behavior. So any individual, despite their knowledge and understanding about health is going to behave differently in a given environment. So, you know, if I claim to be some expert in health, even I will make different decisions based on where I'm at. So, you know, if I'm in New York City, I'm going to walk probably more. I'm going to behave differently. I mean, I'm going to be faster paced, which is maybe not a good thing all the time, but at least I'll be walking. So that's a good thing. If I'm in, let's say, someplace like Costa Rica, a little village in Costa Rica, I'll be walking more most likely because that's the culture there and I'll be slowed down. And I experienced that when I was there, really slowed down. Life seems to go at a slower pace. Time seems to sort of pause. So, you know, depending on where you're at, if I'm in, you know, middle of nowhere town in Iowa, I'm going to behave differently than I am going to if I'm in LA, which is I'm unlikely to walk anywhere in LA. I used to live in LA and you have to drive everywhere. So, you know, your behavior changes based on location. So that's what I found to be really intriguing when I was, in these places that, you know, your environment kind of dictates who you become. So what do you recommend to people like me and living in a big urban city? And, you know, what, what could we do 
to mimic this when we're, we're, you know, our internet's always on, we have our cell phones, we have our smartphones, we are, we're, we're checking our email a hundred times a day. I mean, what is it that you think we can do to really um, help us live a longer, happier life? And you actually get into the crux of the whole of the point of the entire documentary, which is to not glorify the past, right? So it's so easy for to hear what I'm saying and think that it was such a paradise to live in the way that they lived, but also hear that they worked their tail off. They were outside all the time. They were working their tail off. They didn't have the luxuries that we had. I would not want to go live in that in that way for 50 years of my life. I wouldn't. I would not want to go backwards. So what do we do today? That's the whole point. And the idea is to look at those the, the way that they lived, extract all the positive things, and see how we can consciously include it into our lives here in the West. So our natural tendency, based on what I just said, that our environment sort of tends to dictate our behavior. That's only the case if we're not conscious, right? So however, if I, if I sort of switch on my conscious self and say, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm finding a tendency that I'm on the computer more. Well, maybe every once in a while I go outside and I take a little 10-minute walk, right? So to me, it's about understanding what the health implications are of doing different behaviors and trying to work those into our life. That is the key. If I can focus, sleep is really, really important. Okay, well, I'm going to make conscious effort to lower my lighting at night, to get outside in the morning, to switch on my circadian rhythm. So you have to kind of understand some of this stuff in order to make the conscious changes. That's part of the documentary to help explain why you need to do these things, what's important. And then it's up to you to, to, to weave those into your modern life. I'm on a computer right now. This is not a healthy thing. I'm sitting in a chair. I'm looking at a screen. I'm inside. It's beautiful. All right. It's sunny. I'm in San Diego. It's healthier for me to be outside playing in the garden, hanging out with other people. But there's a mission here. I love what I do. I love spreading this message. So, so which one's better? Is it better for me to be in a crappy environment with a passion that I'm just oozing that's oozing out of me? Or is it better for me to be out there consciously interacting with my environment, but not necessarily my passion? Hard to say, right? So I think it's not a matter of demonizing, demonizing our, our, our reality and our modern ways. You don't have to feel guilty about the way you live. It's just about being conscious, trying to make better decisions, trying to, to get rid of some of this excess stuff that we don't necessarily need, that's not fulfilling us, that's not serving us, and, and just stepping into some of these more simple things and, and working it into our life. That's really the goal. Okay, and you know, you and I had spoken earlier about. Um, I loved what you had to say in Okinawa about uh, the elderly person's home. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. How it's not a place to put away old people, but yes. it's actually um, a a center point for a lot of socialization. So tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. So when we went around to all these places in in, in Okinawa, in, in Costa Rica, and Ikaria. And Italy, they had the, the older population had a role, you know, whether it was with the family and taking care of their grandchildren or whatever it was, or they felt connected to a community like in Okinawa. They, they tended to be more in a communal space. There, there, there kind of needs to be a point to your life. So this is this this is actually ties into brain health and ties into longevity. If you have a reason to get up in the morning which is to help take care of the family, to interact with the grandkids, to go see your friends at the old folks' home, to work in your garden, to play music, whatever is your passion, no matter how old you get, that seems to be an important factor. There's something that they've, they, they've termed psychogenic death. And this is the idea that if I start to give up on life, if there's, if there's sort of no reason for me to be here, there does seem to be a process of actually moving towards death. Um, and, and they've studied this, you know, that there's actually five stages. They, so they've, they've really looked into this and it's a phenomenon where, 
you kind of just give up on life, you know, psychologically or emotionally. And if you do that psychologically and emotionally or spiritually, then the body seems to follow suit, right? It's, it's sort of an, a placebo effect of, of, of giving up on life, of death. You know, you, you, you go through the death process and your emotion and, and your mind, then the body seems to follow. So in Okinawa, there, there was an old folks home, but, and there was people that were in the late 90s, over 100, but not everybody lived there. So I found that really fascinating that it wasn't a place where people go to move in full time necessarily. Some of the people still lived at home, but you know their their husband or wife had passed, and they don't have anybody around. And they what, what keeps them going is they'd show up to the old folks' home like it was a community center, like it was a YMCA, hanging out with all the other old people. And it was cool because they had their friends. And it's not like we would hang out now. They're not playing cards and doing all these things necessarily. They're kind of just sitting there most of the time. But there's a little interaction with others, just being around other people. The staff was there. They had karaoke. They did little chair movement exercises to get their body and their brain moving. You know, hand-eye coordination, very good for the brain. They had music. They had dancing where they would kind of just – some of them would kind of dance. Some of them would watch. So there was an engaging aspect to what they were doing. And this – Un, it invariably adds to their health and their longevity. Some would come just for the bath, you know, but, but there was a communal aspect to this stuff. And so I just don't see that in, in, around here. I, I didn't know there was such a thing where people lived on their own and they'd come and just hang out with people. So, you know, that was a really cool thing to witness, but it was also cool to see that the staff and the whole point of the, of the sort of old folks home was there to facilitate health in these people. You know, they did exercises. They did karaoke and music. Music seems to be a really, really important thing for the brain. You want to keep your brain uh, young, music, movement, um, and, and engaging with others. Those three things, I would say, are the most important things you can do. And it turns out in every population that we went to around the world, they stayed active into their 80s, 90s, until they could no longer really move. So moving your body is really, really helpful for the brain. Music is very stimulating, and there's tons of science behind this stuff. You know, we can actually regrow neurons. We can form new neuronal pathways. We can reduce inflammation from music alone. So I think those are really, really key to avoid Alzheimer's, dementia, and neurodegenerative diseases as a whole. Okay, and we have a question. I'm not sure you can answer this one, but um, someone's written in that while we're just at the start of learning about the impact of the microbiome on health, it has a history. Um, the notion that cultured dairy products might be healthful was popularized in the early 1900s um, by a Russian biologist. Um, uh, who proposed that health and longevity were linked to the type of bacteria living in the intestines. Um, so do you think that, um, I, did you learn anything about bacteria, diet, um, microbiome um, in, in the research that you did? Well, so this is actually a big part of my practice personally with, with health. And so we actually dedicated an entire episode to this subject, uh, which is the microbiota and the microbiome and your health. Uh, the microbiota is really, really influential. The, 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 and when I say microbiota, these are the bacteria and the viruses and the fungi and all the, all the protozoans, all the critters that live in our sort of gastrointestinal tract and actually everywhere. It's in the vagina, it's in the eyes, the ears, the brain, it's in the mouth, it's everywhere. It's actually on our skin. The microbiota actually teach and train the immune system. So it is critical. We, you, in the question, whoever submitted that question is correct, that we are still in our infancy and in truly understanding the gut. But we do, or we, are, we are now convinced how important it is. And in fact, it might be the most important thing that we have in our body, which is to say that the microbiota 
all around our body, particularly in the gut, seem to control anywhere from 95 to 99% of the function. So what you think about genes and all this stuff is a small, small fraction of what's really controlled. So the microbiota is insanely, insanely important. And in fact, the microbiota directly communicate to the brain. So depression, anxiety, um, all these things that are involved with neurotransmitters, very, very linked to the gut. Most of the serotonin is produced in the gut. Um, we know that there's that there's other signals that go directly to the gut via the vagus nerve and, and other functions and, and, and methods. So there's a very, very strong you know, correlation, but also direct causal uh, relationship between what's happening in the gut and our overall health and particularly our brain health. In fact, this is often referred to the, the second brain. And some would argue that it's the first brain, that it's the real brain. Um, so how, how could we relate that back to what you were seeing with like the people who, I mean, is it, is it basically their diet is better for their gut? Yeah. I mean, this actually goes back to more toward birth. So most of the microbiota is actually um, sort of it's set up at birth, you know, having a vaginal birth, very, very important. You know, that, that actually seeds the gut of the baby going through the vagina. So that flora in the, in the, in the vagina actually seeds the gut with good bacteria. And actually the mom's vaginal microbiota shifts, it changes the populations and the types of bacteria actually change when, when birth is getting ready to happen to facilitate that process. So we're actually starting to see the magic of the, of the co-organization between organisms in the body and the communication, it's amazing. So having more natural births if possible, you know, it's not always possible, you know, and that's understandable. In fact, we have lower infant mortality when it comes to birthing than some of the other populations, but we're intervening, I think, too often when it's unnecessary. So we can facilitate a natural birth, seeding the, the gut of the baby through the birth, having uh, breastfeeding being a major, major factor. So getting back to sort of the dairy or, 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 or you know, milk question, that's actually the biggest part of, of the young microbiota and the immune system is breastfeeding. And we're not breastfeeding long enough um, when it comes to optimal health. And this, believe it or not, is probably the most important part of longevity is what happens between conception and probably five years old. When we're talking about emotional traumas and developmental, you know, psycho-spiritual traumas. We're talking about breastfeeding and birthing and, and connection and the whole bonding. That is probably the most important factor when it comes to longevity. So there's a lot, like I said, we dedicated an entire episode to this, which is episode two um, to this factor, but it is critical. So another important thing is to get out into nature, to be amongst bacteria. Stop trying to kill bacteria. You know, the bacteria, we don't need hand sanitizers and soaps and detergents and all that stuff. They didn't use that. Nobody used that around the world until the, the chemical revolution in the 40s, basically. They use natural products for that. So we're using all these synthetic chemicals that are killing bacteria. That are just, that we have MRSA now. We have all these, you know, things that are these bacteria that are superbugs that we can't kill because they've been modified. They're modifying themselves to our chemical environment. And now we can't kill them. So these antibiotic-resistant strains are now becoming a problem. So we need to, the, the solution is to get back out into the dirt, to get to get your food from the dirt, right? To wash it off, but don't scrub all the bacteria off. In fact, eating a picked fruit directly from the tree contains a layer of bacteria and the microbiota that is so beneficial to seed the gut. So eating natural foods seeds the gut. You know, these are the things that we need to do. Everything has a relates to the gut. So um, even music, you know, something or, or, or looking at nature, being outside in a forest will change the bacteria in the gut. It's amazing how this all interacts, but doing all the positive, healthy things will actually change the influence, the gut microbiota, which then influences everything else.
Okay. Well, there's a lot of information out there um, that you, and certainly one that you've given us uh, to think about. We have to get more dirty. Um, we've we've got to go back to nature. We've got to socialize more. We've got to know the source of our food and have it be a really good source. Um, you've given us a, a, a lot to think about. Can I, can um, I add one thing real quick? Because I have not mentioned it. We need to have fun, enjoy our lives, find something meaningful and, 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 and passion-driven whether it's art or whatever it is. So, so I think this is a key factor and I often forget it because it's so simple. Um, and it, but it's, it's a, it's an important factor. So I, I just want to throw that in before we, before we kind of wrap up. Absolutely. The power of happiness, it can have more impact than you actually think. So um, great information there. Um, if you want to watch Jason's documentary series, uh, you can go to uh, humanlongevityfilm.com. That's right, right? And I believe it's up on the screen now. Um, and um, thank you, Jason. Thanks for the insight and, you know, for your initiative to talk to uh, some of the world's oldest people um, and giving us some great information. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So if you want to hear more um, of these brain talks, follow us on Facebook, uh, join the group or follow us on Being Patient. Uh, we always post these talks on beingpatient.com uh, where you can see them again um, after we air them live. So thanks very much for joining us and we'll be back again with our next talk. Uh, follow the Facebook group or follow us on social media and we'll tell you when. Thanks for watching.